0: Hello and welcome yet again. This is uh, my ninth attempt at putting stuff on Ambron Radio for your delectation. Um, quite when you're going to hear it is a matter of uh, what time of the week and which of the uh, the weeks uh, you're listening. And I'm not going to go through it again, but every week, for three weeks, things rotate. Uh, So if you hear something on one day, uh, listen on the same day, the next week you'll hear something different. There you go. Anyway, Of Frogs and Techno Dance, in this episode, will be followed by Sparks on Bonfire Night, and then A Moving Experience, which is an ancient Uh, an ancient piece of info, and then Doctor Who, which is similarly old, telling the story of how I made parts of that wonderful series. Please enjoy it. Of Frogs and Techno Dads Two of the three kids I'm looking after today are playing happily, as I type. My first child is playing with a borrowed one in the cat's lavatory, or sand pit, as we used to call it. I'm sitting in the garden with thousands of baby frogs. These are what my second child is inadvertently stamping on. This is a Tuesday morning. The father of the one who's not ours is working down south where the real jobs are. What am I doing here? Well, it's mostly my choice, but I think I jumped off the edge of the employment cliff before I fell. A long time ago, I had a real job. A real life. A job for life. The problem with a job that lasts that long is that interest in it runs up before life does. In my case, long before. That job was at the BBC, in the telrec department. In those good old days, television was recorded on machines four times the size of an upright piano, on tapes so heavy that it was only possible to carry four at once before damaging your back. That was 20 years or more ago. Uh, Note from Ed, I wrote this 20 years ago, so that was 40 years or more ago. Today, that same technical job can be done in the palm of one hand, and still leave space left for a camera, television, even a high-fidelity stereo sound recorder. However, there is not space enough for the engineering bod who carted round, loaded up, cleaned and optimised the playback of the old massive tapes. I saw this coming and did something about it. I left. By the time I left television, I was one of those people who took the adverts out of commercial British programmes and stuck the ends together again so that our lads overseas could have some home telly to watch without the temptation of unavailable chocolate bars or whatever quite a rewarding job, though dull. I really hate adverts. To make the trip into the unknown and therefore more interesting outside world a bit less stressful, I did it in several stages. The first was to change the title and my place of my work. Moving away from London did not have to mean leaving TV immediately. I found freelance work and did that until my new employers caught on that they didn't need humans to run their gadgets either. Computers could do the irks themselves, so they sacked the irks. That was almost ten years ago. Brackets, thirty. So, what do I do now? I can't do, so I teach. Computing. I had to stop typing there as my son, with frog-encrusted feet, wants a cuddle. "'He needs his nappy changing too, but it's strangely unaware of that. "'The forces which push me out of TV "'also allow me to write these indelicate problems "'with one hand in mid in the garden. "'It is the electronic revolution which has done all this "'and has affected almost all areas of my life. "'It has caused me problems and set me many a challenge, "'and I think I'm winning. "'I'm certainly enjoying life more now than ever before, "'but the price is not only one of a massively reduced income,' but also, and mainly, one of reduced or removed feelings of security. It was a major leap of faith for me to manage to run out of the rat race's major rut. It was more than a shock to find that there is another small race to be run outside of it. As usual, running away gets you nowhere, and the forces pushing me have not abated even though I've escaped their initial direct attack. If anything, they have increased. I moved into computers when Telly died. At the same time, it was still possible to kid other people you knew all about computers. That has always been impossible, but the unbridged chasm between the attainable and unattainable is widening by the second. And again, I saw that coming, so I've given up again. As I write, I'm being even further deskilled. The continuing insurmountability of the job problem can get me down, but I know there is a way out of it. All I have to do is to try hard enough, not to worry. Everyone is in the same boat. The number of men pushing their kids to playgroup proves that. From time to time we even talk to each other. A shared new existence which makes we techno-dads beam with pleasure, when we aren't wondering how to pay the bills, that is. "'It is oddly difficult to write while a child in your care is screaming for attention. "'I know he is fine. I know he can manage without my 100% attention. "'I know he is safe. He's sitting at my feet.' "'But thinking becomes close to impossible while his screams continue. "'How is a lad supposed to work like this?' "'Ah, I know. Wait till Mummy comes home.' "'It can be lonely being a techno-dad. "'To cheer myself up, I, of course, use my computer. "'The internet, to be exact.' No silly games for me. For example, 100 million hits were registered on NASA's Mars Pathfinder Internet website on the day of the recent probe's landing 20 years ago. A web hit is when one computer asks for data from the one holding the web page. It does not equate to a number of people at all. People are another matter entirely. By day four, after the landing, the figure quoted by the massed media was still 100 million, Probably because someone twigged the planet would run out of humans if the total rose that fast every day. What is the relevance of this, you ask? Well, being one of that apparent vast number, I wanted to share my delight and wonder at it all with another human. All I can find, though, are computers. Even computers run by other humans seem to leave their operators unmoved. Well, I am in paroxysm of delight. They turn off. Why? How? It is a bad sign that my partner and soulmate also remains steadfastly irritated by it all. She is no Luddite. She blames Star Trek for her lack of interest. Not the 60s sitcom, but the thought-provoking version of the 90s. These programmes are made so well that belief in them has outmaneuvered the wonder of reality. Seen that, done that, at least at third hand via DS9. That accounts for some... Yet those 100 million must be out there somewhere. Where are the other Marsophilic techno-dads? It worries me that I can't get out of this by teaching. If so many people can use computers well enough to see what Mars looked like 10 minutes ago, and all that without much help from experts, then who is left for me to teach? The kids in the sandpit, perhaps? But I will have to scrape the cat poo off them first. That'll be nice. (music) Sparks on Bonfire Night. I come from an almost traditional family, the sort one doesn't often find these days. We follow the habits of old inasmuch as, for us, birthdays and fireworks nights still mean something. For years now, my birthday has fallen around the time traditionally associated with November the 5th, and so from my earliest days, these two major celebrations have been combined. My memories of the first five or more such evening events are so cloudy as to no longer exist. Maybe they will one day flash before my eyes, but until then I can speak with authority only for the rest of them. The earliest recollection, of which I am currently aware, which holds up to retelling in the company of a member of the family, is not of explosives in a muddy back garden, but of the type created by a concentration of school-aged children. This was my first real birthday party. The combination of free food and freedom from personal parental guidance allowed the children I had been told to call friends to really let rip, "'From this day on, any guests of mine for any gathering "'have been very carefully chosen and chosen by me. "'Only grudgingly do I even now attend groupings gathered together by others "'for fear the events of my youth may happen again. "'Rather than provide local kids the pleasure of destroying my home, "'I now do it myself, but under much more controlled circumstances.' For me, the delight of setting fire to something designed for the purpose has never lost its lure. Only last night I found myself throwing unused tissues into the newly opened old hearth. I spent a few happy minutes striking and throwing still flaring matches after them in the hope that the flames would spread. I didn't stop until they had. If the first batch had done the job, I would have had to make the task harder by throwing them from a greater distance at wet paper, like a cat playing with a ball of wool. It's not much fun if I hit it right the first try. The pleasure comes from the triumph after effort. These days I'm a bit more laid back about things. I didn't recall this act of gentle pyromania on electromagnetic tape. Many audio tapes do exist, preserving the sounds of old fireworks being trodden into the traditional mud of bygone days. But these are not just any ordinary tape recordings, but experiments in the world of sound. Quadraphonics. Now there is a word to remember. It used to refer to the act of reproducing sound through four loudspeakers in such a way as to reproduce the effect of a jumping jack chasing you at all 360 degrees around microphones. It could take hours to set up the machinery. I needed two tape recorders for the job, one pulling the tape, one having the tape pulled through it backwards. Two plus two, you know. They would be set up in my bedroom, miles away from the sounds which had to be amplified in order to get them as far as the tape. "'Multiple lengths of wire snaked and looped in what I thought was a neat manner "'around the house carrying this deathless signal to posterity. "'It took me all day to set it up. "'By the time all the wires were in place, the fireworks themselves had to be arranged. "'This could also take some time. "'So too could the building and subsequent lighting of the bonfire.' After a few years of also cramming in time enough for making a guy, he was dropped from the running order in favour of getting round to letting off the explosives. I used to have a sack full of the things, bright colours and funny smells, all of them. And that was before they were lit. For weeks before the great day, I would take them out and look at them and give them a really good sniff. Fireworks do smell so very nice. Well, they did when I smelt them as part of my pre-birthday fun, anyway. These days, they might as well be filled with rubber by the stench coming from them, but not then. Today, only the organised displays smell right... I used to spread my collection of the home variety out on the floor. A table was never large enough. There I would play with them. I would pretend to follow the firework code, not to be held in the hand, then transfer bits from the top of one to the top of another, creating a new type of pyrotechnic delight in the process. The result was a lot of gunpowder in the carpet, and a few unexpected fizzles on the day of lighting. I'm tempted to think that one has to try very hard to be injured by fireworks. Thirty years of being stupid, and I've not a blister to show for it. But uh, then I was stupid carefully. Looking back, I do remember some very close shaves, or good fun as we called them at the time. Putting bangers in pipes blocked with mud at each end would make a domestic bazooka capable of blasting a hole clean through the canopy of any deciduous tree daft enough to still be carrying leaves in October. That was fun. An adaptation from the basic weapon produced a missile launcher that could project a pipe 40 feet into the air. The mechanism of directing the trajectory was never worked out. The flight was seldom watched, we were running away too fast. All these things came from my past dalliances, but even today escape is sometimes a matter more of chance than judgment. This year past I was given and launched an unmodified rocket of gargantuan proportions. The garden could not provide the stated fifty or so foot standwell back distance, but I let it off anyway. It rose majestically into the clear, still night sky, pursued by more than the usual amount of ooing and ahhing. Eventually it ran out of puff. Maybe it bounced off an undiscovered dark moon or something. It should have reached orbit. It was high enough. The rocket was then seen to rotate about its axis by exactly a 180 degrees, before beginning an equally fast but this time almost invisible and silent descent. Most of us observing the phenomena called that the end of the display. Something from my years of training in these matters made me decide to watch it come down, guided by the faint red glow from the exhaust. This was nearly a very good thing, because it landed in the garden, not five feet from the bucket that gave it flight. The thump made by the homecoming showed us how lucky we had been that it missed the roof. Slates and their replacements could have been an expensive end to the evening. We were luckier still it missed us. The following is a document from centuries ago, well, indeed, the last millennium. I call it a moving experience. After years of captivity, I am soon to be free... Free from the pleasures of life with our furry friends. This is because the animals and I are moving house. They, together with a few more valuable articles broken pencils, old paper-clips, etc., will be lost in transit. We will never meet again. I am to pull up my allotted share of sticks and transport them across the many miles of open pavement to the house next door. I've chosen this most distant of alternative homes to minimise the shock and horror of having to move at all. Having been forced by circumstance, and bad planning on my part, into making the move, I must find the good side of this second most traumatic event in my life. Seeing the advantages of animal loss is just one of those better things. The move itself will be stranger than the usual sort people engage in. Mine will be rather dreamlike. Indeed it was. Having been erected at the same time and by the same workforce, the two buildings concerned were of the same approximate design. Not only did they share many pleasing internal features, but they also had similar faults and shortcomings. The whole point of not moving much is because the house I left was rather good. It was a family home and I could happily have stayed in it until retirement, but there you go. Although they were a good match, they did differ in one major respect that concerned me to no little degree. There was an annoying lack of doors opening onto the rest of the house downstairs. This was the result of the butchery that rising house prices seem always to cause. I was to move to a first-floor flat. In the new place, the decoration and careless positioning of water tanks can do a lot to confuse the eye. It looks as if the new landing was one foot wider than the old. The lavatory and bathroom, therefore, have to be one foot smaller, as the overall widths of the houses are the same. On closer inspection, this appearance was seen to be merely that. I had to prove it to myself by measuring things. Not ever having had a long enough ruler with me, it is my custom to use bits of my person for making comparative measurements.' It's a good thing I wasn't spotted when I checked the bathroom. Lying full-length tummy on the floor in in a place I was planning to buy could confuse the vendor quite a bit. No one would believe me if I told them what I was doing. Apart from the flat-like nature of the place I intended to purchase, a subtle but real difference always exists between the two properties. Initially I thought it would be minor, but it was filled with latent problems – In the new place, the doors had been arranged differently to accommodate the positioning of the staircase on the other side of the corridor. I could quite see the confusion to come when I forgot which sort of building I was in. It took me long enough to get used to the original position of the stairs. I feared that if in the dark of two in the morning I forgot where we'd moved, the error could save me from the tedium of having to commit suicide by plunging me to an accidental death. In the new flat, the absence of animals may indeed have extended my life span a while, but even when I knew where the stairs were, I could have problems negotiating them. In the past, the odd sleeping beast had been positioned at foot height at the stair edge of the first floor landing. I tried never to disturb it, be it cat or dog, as if woken it would probably require feeding another area of repulsion for me. So I step gently over and around the unsuspecting monster. In my care not to kick it, I forget to watch where my foot is heading once it has passed the animal in peace. Remembering that this has all occurred at the top of a flight of stairs in the dark of two in the morning... Holding on to the banister end post, I find I have walked around the non-floor side of the pet. When this happens, one of my feet is left flailing around at less than the expected level by a frightening degree. This level of fright is sufficient to wake not only the house animals, but also the rest of this and several adjoining households. My strained expletives and wild thumping are the cause of this upset as I sway on my one shaking leg and grasp for the now shaky banisters with my other hand, all the time striving to find some support for my pounding heart and grieved body. Meanwhile, my other leg is thrashing around on the stairwell side of the terrified animal. As my foot tests the air for a non-furry footing ASAP, the banister mounting sends a telltale stream of dust to the floor, showing there is not long before it will give way altogether. By the time I regain footing for both feet, the relevant pet would be cowering behind the dirty washing basket or any other landing clogging object. My anger will then subside, and the space left by that emotion will be filled with a profound shock. Forgetting the need that got me up in the first place, my trip to the lavatory, I stumble off back to bed to recover. Eventually I'll fall asleep again, only to awake a few hours later, all the more desperate for the bathroom, when, in my hurry, I usually forget the animal again. I'm not a quick study in the early hours. (music) I worked at Television Centre, videotape television recording, from 1978 till approximately 1989, I think. A period which covered several of the Peter Davison Doctor Who stories. My involvement was mostly at quite a distance, being under the fountain in the dark. But without television recording, nothing would exist. So I think our stories should be told. Well, at least mine The act of transmitting a tape was from time to time rather more of an event with Doctor Who stories than with any other programme. In the closing scenes of Davison's story, Snake Dance, the monster had to be destroyed by centering it within a set of mirrors. When the alignment of the mirrors was just right, the Mara, giant snake evil creature, exploded in a flash of light. The flash had been generated by a rather overzealous vision mixing desk, such that the video peaked at somewhat more than the VTR at the time could manage. Fortunately, I had seen and noted on the recording report form the fact that this flash would make the machine a quadruplex VTR, two-inch tape recorder, two-inch high tape, lose lock, when to my horror I saw that this fact had not been picked up before transmission, which as luck would have it, I was doing, I had to do some quick knob work on the video output at the appropriate moment. The chroma, the bit that would have gone wrong had I not been adjusting the signals, did not overload. The AVR2 did not lose lock, and the doctor won the day again. I was the videotape engineer for Adric's final moments in the Cyberman's doomsday story, Earthshock. Matthew Waterhouse had to type frantically on a keyboard to feed in emergency code to save the day, but as he typed, a not-quite-dead-yet-Cyberman shot his last shot and blew up the device he was typing on with a very satisfying and on his first take somewhat unexpectedly violent explosion. The shock of this showed in quite the wrong way, and a second take was required. Matthew was noticeably unkeen to stand quite so close the second time as he had the first, and he very tentatively tapped at full arm's length. This time the bang was expected and no damage was done, but I preferred take one. The next job for me was to record the end captions of that same programme. There was a problem. There was no sound. So, like the diligent recording operator I was, I called the studio to report the fault. I was told the silence was deliberate. But I was not told why. The reason for the rather terse comments I was given from above became clear when the show went out. Adric had died. I had killed him, and I didn't realize it. Even if I had known, there's no way I would have leaked the story to the press. Recording a scene for the five doctors gave me a chance to really shine as an engineer. I had to play into the studio from one machine and record an added effect on another. The problem was the machines were not working quite as well as they could. The producer at the time was John Nathan Turner, who was for some reason, I can't remember actually why, in the recording cubicle with me when I set the machines up. The scene was shot in a moody low light, and the heads of the videotape recorder had worn down to the point where banding, quadruplex banding, was too obvious for my professional eye to allow. Problem was, there was very little time to do anything about it. But I did anyway. J. N. T., as he was fondly known, said it was OK as it was, but I had just finished a term in the video head optimization department and was totally up to the task of doing a super-fast head change. This I managed easily in time to not cause any difficulties with the studio. To my pleasure and satisfaction, I later found out JNT was also impressed. I was and am a great fan and lifelong follower of the show and I'm still proud that JNT wanted me to work on all of his shows from then on. A feather in my calf, and no mistake. But nothing actually ever came of it. Finally, I can relate my only editing experience on the show, the Doctor Who exhibition at Longleat House. They required a short video sequence to be played in a loop, but the shoestring budget could not stretch to actually getting a suite together to do the edit nor had anyone even had enough budget to decide what to show, let alone do an offline edit beforehand. I got the job. At BBC Enterprises, where I then worked, I had two helical scan, VPR machines, and a few transmission recordings of Peter Davison's final episode and regeneration sequence. I did a pull-together of the main events, which, from my memory, what I thought were the best... I got a T-shirt for doing that, several sizes too small, but much appreciated all the same. I never saw the exhibition, but many years later I met a fan who still remembered seeing and loving my edit. At the time, I was also rewarded for my efforts by being told about outtakes I had not known of. The VT Christmas tapes had already sparked the first of what had become many programmes showing outtakes, and I could present the overacting Dalek and one I called Bugger I've Lost Them to the viewing world. If you know the show, you know these clips. Only one got on the Golden Egg Award, part of the Noel Edmonds Saturday show, and that gave me my only screen credit in over a decade of videotape work at Television Centre. It was a great job to talk about, but most of it was actually very dull to do, apart from the good bits. (laughs)